0: Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35. It's kind of like two sections. The first is from verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to even listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you, on earth agree about anything they ask for it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three gather in my name there i am with them now we come to a parable that jesus spoke verse 21 then peter came to jesus and asked lord how many times shall i forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times jesus answered i tell you not seven times but 77 times therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began to settlement a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to do. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tormented until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart.
1: Well, uh, keep your Bibles open there in Matthew 18, and uh, let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, please open our eyes that we see wonderful things in it. Uh, please soften our hearts, remind us of your incredible grace and forgiveness to us, and may that uh, transform our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Amen. Well, uh, you might uh, be new to church here today, and uh, if you are, you, you might be wondering what to expect uh, at Trinity Church Maybe wondering what kind of life in this community is like. Uh, maybe you're sort of kind of new to church, and you're thinking, "Well, what what is it like to be a Christian or to live with Christians? What is what is church like?" And you know, you're probably expecting me at this point to tell you just how great it is. What a wonderful community we have, how everyone's always so kind and everyone's always looking out for each other and no one ever puts anyone down and no one ever gets jealous or stabs anyone in the back or gossips or lies or cheats or is greedy or selfish or lazy or looks down or is unkind. No one ever pays anyone out or steals or entertains inappropriate fantasies about anyone else or flirts with people. But I'm not. And I can't tell you that because that wouldn't be true. It isn't true. We are a community. What I will tell you we are like is the opposite. Maybe not the exact opposite. It's not all that we do. We don't do those things all the time. But we do do those things. See, the reality is Christians sin. Every one of us in this church sins. Everyone around us sins. And we will keep sinning until the day we die. And that means that we will also sin against each other. See, Christians are no different in this regard to anyone else. But the way we should be different is how we deal with sin when we sin and sin against each other. Now, Jesus' instructions to us here in Matthew 18 are actually some of the most (laughs) countercultural and difficult to follow commands that Jesus ever gave his followers. What Jesus says here is really, really, really hard to wrap our heads around and really, really, really harder to actually practice. But when God's people do deal with sin the way that Jesus teaches us here, it shows the goodness of the gospel in a way that's more compelling than if we never even sinned in the first place. So let's have a little look. Part one, verse 15 to 20, you've got your outlines there. Point out the sin to win the sibling. Now you know that awkward moment when you're, you know, you're in public with someone and and you notice their flies undone or they've got a booger hanging out of their nose. And you know, it happens to the best of us at some time. I actually checked my fly several times before I got up. Now I'm self conscious about it. But uh, I don't know what your head does in that situation, but my head, as soon as I notice, my brain just sort of shuts down everything else. I don't hear anything. And I'm just thinking to myself, what do I do? They mustn't realise. They mustn't, you know, what do I do? Do I tell them? I should tell them. But hang on, if I tell them, then they'll know that I've noticed and then they'll be embarrassed. But, but hang on, if I don't tell them, then they'll keep walking around and then other people might notice. And, and what do I do? Do I point it out or do I pretend it's not there? Now, can I just put it on record here? I'd like this to be made known. If you ever see that my fly is undone or I've got a booger on my nose, I would like you to tell me, Please. I want you to tell me. At some point, I'm probably going to go to the bathroom and figure it out for myself, and then realize that everyone's been sort of thinking, oh, Scott's got his fly undone, and no one's said anything. See, now, when it comes to wardrobe malfunctions and personal hygiene, I don't know what kind of person you are. You're more of the pointed out person or the pretend it isn't there person. When it comes to sin, Jesus says we don't have an option to pretend it isn't there. Have a look at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Sorry, Jesus, I I don't want to go and point out their fault. But Jesus, I, I don't think I'm qualified. Go and point out their fault. But I don't have a close enough relationship with them. It'll be, it'll be awkward and go and point out their fault. But they weren't sinning against me. It's not really affecting anyone. Go and point out their fault. Now, for many of us, this is one of the hardest, scariest things to even consider doing. I think most of us would rather pretend that we didn't see anything. I would rather pretend that I didn't see or hear or know about their sin because I don't want to talk to my brother or sister about it. But Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. And i have got to ask the question, why? Why is it our business? I mean, isn't it between them and God? Well, it was between them and God until you saw it, and now you're in the picture, and it's between them and God and you. It wasn't your business, but now you've happened to stumble upon it, and so now it is your business. Why? Well, because you are connected. I am connected. We are connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ. When I was a little boy, I don't quite know how old, I, you know, I must have been pretty young, uh, but my baby sister had walked or crawled out onto a fish pond, you know, it had the you got this sort of steel mesh just under the water. And she'd sort of crawled out. Uh, and I knew she was in danger. And I yelled out. I yelled and I yelled. I don't think I even said you know, anything intelligible. I think I just stood there yelling. And my mom and my dad came and, and scooped her up. And she was safe. See, as God's people, we are brothers and sisters. When a brother or sister sins, like my little sister on that fish pond, they are in great danger of shipwrecking their faith. And our action in pointing out their sin could save them. See, we didn't used to be connected like this. We didn't used to be bound together. But now we've been adopted by God. We are his children and we are brothers and sisters connected for all eternity. When we see a brother or a sister caught in sin, we need to realise just how deadly it is. Actually, if you were to look back in the first part of chapter 18, in the, uh, we've actually come in sort of halfway through a conversation here. And in the first part of the conversation between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus explained That actually, guys, if you realized how deadly serious sin really is, you would amputate your own hand if you thought that would make you rid of it. If you realized how deadly serious sin is, you would gouge out your own eyeball if that's what it would take to deal and get rid of your sin. See, when we see a brother or sister sinning, it might not seem like much, but Jesus says it's deadly. And when we point out their fault, we may just be able to rescue them. Have a look again at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, back, uh, way back in the beginning of the Bible's story, the very first naturally born human, Cain, was with his, you know, the very next naturally born human, his brother Abel. And uh, Cain got jealous of his brother Abel and, and he killed his brother and hid his body in the field. And God came down to Cain and he said, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Of course we know the answer to that question, don't we? Well, actually, yes, you do know where your brother is. You just killed him and hit him in the field. And yes, you are your brother's keeper. Your responsibility to your brother is to care for him, to look after him, to watch over him, to love him, to protect him, which is the exact opposite of what you just did, Cain. And you know, when we see a brother or sister in danger, in sin, we have the same responsibility to care for them, to love them, to try and win them back out of danger. In that first half of chapter 18, God talks about how that's what he does. Like a shepherd, when even just one sheep is lost, he will leave the 99 behind and he will go and he will do everything he can to bring that sheep back who has wandered away, that, that Christian who has fallen into sin. And as children of our Father, we must do the same. We must go. But, says Jesus, we must go gently. Have a look at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Just the two of you. Quietly, privately, gently, lovingly, relationally. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, go and point out their fault immediately no matter whatever else is happening, no matter who's around. Now, we've all made that mistake, haven't we? As a parent, as a friend, as a husband, uh, as a Christian brother, I've made this mistake heaps of times, thinking that the need to point out a fault is the need to point out a fault immediately. And, of course, that's not always the most loving thing to do, is it? Jesus says here, go to them, just the two of you, quietly not 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 pouncing on it straight away without thought or tact now if i've got my fly undone up here and you call out anyone who didn't know before is going to know and i'm going to be embarrassed you know actually at that point in time i'd probably would rather wait till i sat down and just quietly let me know see jesus here is saying the quiet gentle private word at an opportune time is often the most effective way to lovingly call a brother or sister back from sin and to win them over go gently says jesus but going gently isn't the same as going soft verse 16 see if if you go to them gently and they do not listen take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, if you go to them privately and you say, hey, I've noticed that you're caught up in this and it's, it's really dangerous and I want to call you back to repentance, you know, Jesus, Jesus is what's calling you back out of that sin and they say, ah... And you go, okay, well, you don't just drop it. You don't just wash your hands of the matter and say, well, I'm done. I did my bit, Jesus. I tried. Not my problem. Jesus says, it is your problem. But notice he doesn't say, just keep nagging. He doesn't say, just keep going, keep going, keep going. No, grab someone else, a mature brother, a mature sister, Someone else who they know and trust and respect and who has the maturity to be able to lovingly, gently uh, try and call this person out of sin. And you go together. And then if that doesn't work, well, we don't go soft on sin. This sin's a big deal. And if we'd cut off our own hand to get rid of sin from our own person, well, as a church, we would put someone out to deal with sin within the body of the church. See, at this point, that might seem really really harsh thing to do. But actually it's what a loving family would do. If there was a family member who had came to the point when they had were acting and behaving in such a way that they could no longer remain in the family home unless they give up their offensive behavior, See, we know that the motivation here is love. The goal of putting them out is so that they realise the seriousness of their sin. They realise what they've left behind and they come back to Jesus and get welcomed back in. Go. Go gently. But we can't go soft on sin. Now, before we come to the second part of what we read this morning, I just want to pause and reflect on just how upside down this way of dealing with sin is to the world that we live in. So what does our world do when they see someone sin? How different is that response? How often our world turns a blind eye? How many parents refuse to correct their children How many friends don't stand up to their friends? How many politicians pretend not to see something that doesn't suit their election hopes? See, our world so often turns a blind eye to sin. And when our world does point out faults, how different is the way that they do it? How different is the method of pointing out faults in our world? The kind of the social media call out, the public shaming. It's not gentle. It's not loving. It's not private. And when our world goes hard on sin, when our world really, really, really points out a fault, how different is the motive See, our world, we don't live in a culture where people's failings and sins and faults and wrongs are brought out for the sake of helping them come to repentance and restoration. We live in a culture where we put someone in the spotlight and we shame them. We cancel them. We destroy them as we hang them out to dry. How different is what Jesus has called his people to? How much more wonderful and loving and personal and relational is what Jesus has called us to do when we're confronted with each other's sin? Now, I put a request uh, on record before. If you catch me with my fly down or booger in my nose, please let me know. I want to put a second request on record here. If you ever see or notice or find me in sin, please, please don't turn the blind eye. Please don't hang me out to dry publicly. Please, please come and love me. Talk to me. Call me back. Point it out. And if I don't listen, grab someone else. And if I still don't listen, do what a church is supposed to do and put me out so that hopefully God's spirit will convict me of my sin and bring me back to repentance. Now imagine if we did this consistently as a church. Imagine how many shipwrecked faiths, imagine how many ruined relationships and marriages and wasted years we could have saved And we could still save if we obey what Jesus says. Address the sin to win the sibling. And now we move to part two. Forgive like one forgiven. Have a look at verse 21. Right after this, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? i don't know about you but i really get where peter's coming from uh jesus has just told them to deal with sin which obviously means they're going to have to forgive the person when they repent and they've won them back and so peter just you know his head keeps going a little bit further he thinks well okay if we've got to you know point out the sin we're going to win them back and then obviously we'll have to forgive them well how many times do we have to do that and, and peter's kind of trying to figure out well where do you draw the line with a repeat offender and I reckon here, as Peter puts out the number seven, I reckon he thinks he's probably been really, really, generous. It's a pretty big number, really. Someone keeps sinning against you. You think about it seven times, that's a lot of times to keep sinning against you. I think Peter's been pretty generous here. I'm like a three strikes and that's it kind of guy. You get to the third time and I've run out of all my grace and patience. But Jesus' answer turns mine and peter's ideas of generous gracious forgiveness upside down have a look at verse 22 jesus answers hey peter i tell you mate not seven times but 77 times well actually that that could actually in the greek be 77 times or it could be 70 times seven either way it's a pretty big number Uh, in the bible both seven and 70 are symbolic numbers Both mean kind of completeness. So seven means kind of wholeness, completeness, fullness. And so 70 is like serious wholeness, serious completeness, serious fullness. 77 or 70 times seven is like super, ultra, mega, uber, wholeness, completeness, fullness. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, when Peter says, how many times do we have to forgive the brother or sister, when they sin against us. Jesus is saying an endless number of times. You just continue forgiving again and again and don't even bother counting because 70 times 7, just keep on going. Well, why? I mean, that sounds really, really hard. That actually sounds like a recipe for getting walked all over, doesn't it? Jesus says, because no matter how many times they sin against us, God has forgiven us endlessly more than we will ever have to forgive our brother or our sister. No matter how much of their rubbish we've put up with, God has put up with endlessly more of ours. No matter how many times we have to forgive God has forgiven us endlessly more. See, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a debt you knew you could never repay. Uh, Anyone in the room with a mortgage right now, just put your hands up. But uh, see, the guy in Jesus' story that he tells, he owes a debt that you really could never repay. Uh, Actually, the first guy in Jesus' story owes the king the equivalent of, of today, Australian $14 billion. Just to put that in perspective, that's 200,000 years of a labourer's wages. Actually, that would be a labourer with decent wages, uh, 70 grand a year. Now, that is an amount he could never pay back. Never, ever, ever. Who knows what he did to the money, but never pay that back. Doesn't matter what inheritances he's going to get, what windfalls, he could win every lottery on the planet and still never pay back $14 billion. But when he begs the king for mercy, the king gives him incredible forgiveness. In one instant, he wipes the lot. No debtors prison, no hard labor, no serving time, complete and utter forgiveness. And then Jesus' story there takes an incredibly shocking turn, doesn't it? Because this guy walks out, runs into a mate who owes him, in comparison, a measly 19 grand, 100 days wages compared to 200,000 years of wages. And he grabs him, and he chokes him, and he says, pay me back every cent. (coughs) And when he begs for mercy, when he does exactly the same thing the first guy did just five minutes ago, we react with shock and horror at his response. Have a look at verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. It's the exact same words, the exact same actions that the first servant just did for the king. But unlike the king, he refused, verse 30. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I mean, how are you going to pay the debt when you're in prison? You can't. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And verse 34 In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, which is never. See, we get it, don't we? This story really hits home. When we we see the servants and the king and their outrage, we feel it too. How could you? How could you do that? Five minutes later, when you've been forgiven so much, how can you be so petty over so little? There's a heart problem here, isn't there? It's not a money problem. It's a heart problem. This guy was forgiven, and he didn't act like it. He'd been shown grace, but the grace hadn't done anything in here. There was no grace in his heart. He had not been transformed. He had not been made new. He had not been impacted By the grace and forgiveness he received, he was heartless. But then Jesus turns this story on us. Verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Forgiveness is from the heart. True forgiveness is not just saying, I forgive you. It's not just pretending we're okay and acting uh, like nothing happened and like we're all good. When deep down we're seething, we're full of hatred and bitterness and anger and, and jealousy that they get off scot-free and we really don't want to want them to, but we know we have to, and so we just got to grin and bear it. No, true forgiveness is when in our hearts. We go, you have hurt me, and I will absorb that hurt. Actually, you owe me a debt. You didn't love me. You didn't, do, you didn't protect me. You didn't respect my right to have you not steal from me, hit me, hurt me, attack me, verbally assassinate my character. But you know what? I'm not going to make you repay that debt. I'm going to cancel that debt. I'm not going to seek or wish or hope for any bad or ill or retribution or revenge. And I am not going to let this sin be the lens through which I view you. I won't let this, this hurt, this sin against me that you have done be the way the primary way that I see you. I'm going to see you as someone who Jesus loves. I'm going to see you as someone who Jesus has forgiven. And I'm not going to hold you as someone who still is a filthy sinner. Now, this is so, so, so hard. Because to us, $19,000 is a lot of money. These hurts are real hurts. We have been really, really, really hurt when our characters were assassinated, when our marriage bed was defiled, when our reputations were snipered, when our loved ones were taken from us, when our bodies were beaten and broken, when our livelihoods were taken and stolen and our families torn apart and our children Subjected to incredible hurts. It really, really, really hurts. And it's really, really hard to forgive. But Jesus wants us to see those hurts, those debts, those sins, in light of the debts and the sins and the hurts that we have done against God. And that he has already forgiven that he has wiped away. He wants us to recognize that then, since we owed $14 billion, that $19,000 they owe to us actually it's not even ours anyway. It's really on his account. Because even though they're sinning against us, the sin against us is nothing compared to what we owe Jesus. Jesus says, put it on my tab if I can forgive you, you can forgive them because I can forgive them too. Now when we grasp that in our hearts, we can let go. And isn't it incredible when God changes us to be able to do that? Isn't it the most amazing thing when we've been carrying that bitterness, that anger, eating us up inside and we let it go? And we know that it's all in God's hands. This isn't just human. It's not, a, it's not a natural human thing. It's not just psychology. It's not just conning ourselves into kind of thinking we can do this. This is the result of true spiritual transformation, of receiving grace, having it transform our hearts and enabling us to pour that grace out on others. Now, many of you will have heard of Corrie Ten Boom, uh, a Dutch Christian uh, who was caught hiding Jews from the Nazis in World War II, and she was sent to a concentration camp. And one year after the war, she was in Germany giving a talk on forgiveness. And at the end of her talk, one—it was the first time she'd met one of the guards from the concentration camp—and he came up to her, and she was not ready for it. Have a listen. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the piles of clothing, Betsy, her sister's plain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. See, actually, on our own, we can't forgive. But Jesus can give us the strength and the ability to do it. And true forgiveness is one of the most radical, powerful testimonies of the gospel that there is in this world. This world full of unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and hurt, True Christian forgiveness stands out like a beacon drawing people to Jesus. But many would say this kind of forgiveness is downright dangerous. And I would love to have a lot more time, but I just want to very quickly touch on the difference here between forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, we'll have uh, question time in a little while, but opportunity to ask some more questions uh, if you have them. Forgiveness and reconciliation... Well, what about the person who's caught in abuse? Is Jesus telling us to stay in abusive situations and keep allowing that person to hurt us over and over again? No. We forgive endlessly, but where did forgiveness take place? It takes place in our heart. Forgiving from our heart doesn't mean that we have to stay around in our body when it's unsafe or unwise to do so. See, even Jesus walked through the crowds and escaped when they were trying to kill him before it was his time. See, being bound to forgive endlessly doesn't mean being bound to keep acting like nothing happened. Not counting sins against someone doesn't mean pretending that the sin never happened and not acting To protect ourselves in the future, we can forgive fully, but unless there's full reconciliation, it doesn't mean that everything just goes back to how things were. So, even in the case of a marriage where there's a covenant, where there's what's been just untenable because of sin, abuse, violence, alcoholism, anything. Even though we're bound to forgive from the heart, we're not bound to be reunited and reconciled. We're not bound to live together. We're not bound to share a bed together or even share our finances or remain in a dangerous situation. We're bound not to go and marry again unless they've divorced and broken the marriage and shacked up with someone else, but we can forgive It does not necessarily mean reconciliation. It does not mean we have to stay in that situation. See, forgiveness happens here independent of the other person's repentance or desire for reconciliation. We forgive here. But reconciliation is dependent on their repentance, their desire for reconciliation, their desire to be reunited, to change, to turn. See, the restoration, forgiveness takes one, reconciliation takes two, to rebuild and restore. We see this in verse 17 in the earlier part, don't we? The one who doesn't listen, who continues to sin, who doesn't repent, is put out of the church. They're cut off from relationship by their own unrepentance. And for their reconciliation, true forgiveness must be met with true repentance for them to come together. Now, at the end of the day, we don't know ever if someone is fully, truly repentant, but it doesn't change our ability to forgive. At the end of the day, God alone knows the heart. Forgiveness and vengeance are his. Where there are unrepentant people who we forgive, our forgiveness stands as a testimony of the gospel, calling them back and showing just the depth of their sin when they refuse. Let us finish that part of our time together by praying. Heavenly Father, please this morning just overwhelm us with the knowledge and the understanding in our hearts of the immensity of of what you have forgiven us for and lord may that transform our hearts that we may be able to see our brothers and sisters through that lens through the lens of of the cross and not through the lens of their sin through the lens of forgiveness and not of hurt and may we be able to forgive them may you give us wisdom as to what that looks like may you give us wisdom as to what relationship and reconciliation could look like but lord whatever happens may we be people who forgive and may that shine so bright in this world that people are drawn to the forgiveness of christ amen